2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor James Crossland about a wonderful book he published with Manchester University Press. The book is called The Rise of Devils, Fear and the Origins of Modern Terrorism. Uh, Dr. James Crossland is an associate professor in, in international history at Liverpool John Morris University, and he's the author of War, Law, and Humanity, The Campaign for Control, Warfare, 1853-1914. to And today he'll be talking to us about this book, The Rise of Devils. James, welcome to New Books at Work. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, to start with, can you briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write a book about the origin of modern terrorism?
1: Yeah, so I... Um... I started working on this period, the late 19th century, for my uh, last book, which actually mentioned was um, uh, War Law and Humanity, which looked a lot at uh, networks and communication, particularly amongst people who were trying to uh, avert the the next world war, uh, which obviously they failed to do. But when I was looking at the means by which people bounced ideas around the world at this time, I um, very much stumbled upon the, the... the way in which radical politics was accelerating quite a bit in the late 19th century. And through that, I started reading more about uh, the sort of first terrorist wave, let's call it, in the uh, 1880s and 1890s. There was principally an anarchist terrorist wave and how it was a transnational phenomenon. And it sparked in me an interest that really went back to. Um, to be honest the morning of september 11th 2001 when i remember that there was this constant refrain during both the aftermath of that attack and the and the years that followed this idea that we've we've never been here before we, we've never seen this this global terrorist threat before we've never seen uh, a war on terrorism before this was something that a lot of journalists um and a lot of pundits like to put out there and at the time, I remember thinking, that just doesn't seem right to me. This this doesn't seem that unprecedented. And um, as I say, it took a, a good couple of decades for me to finally get around to sitting down and actually thinking about it and, and writing a book. And I started looking into the anarchist-terrorist wave and realized that actually it, it even goes back further than the anarchists. And that if you think about the late 19th century holistically, and you look at uh political violence and how it emerges in a number of countries and the forms in which the violence takes, you realize that actually there there was a, a pretty significant uh, wave of terrorism in the late 19th century. And there was indeed a, a war on terror fought um, towards the end of that period as well. And I really wanted to get into um, that. And I wanted to in particular examine the means by which the information, the knowledge of who was committing terrorist attacks why they were committing them by what means they were committing them was barrassed around the world because i think that that knowledge was really key to people emulating each other and and terrorism uh, spreading as a consequence
2: uh great. and yeah you were absolutely right it, i i i was i guess around i don't remember 19 18 or 19 years ago when that when september 11 happened and uh i still remember those headlines and how, you know, we've never been before. This is unprecedented. So well, reading your history, uh, your book was really eye-opening for me. There is a key figure in this book. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Felice Orsini. Uh, Felice Orsini. Uh, okay. yes. Felice Orsini. Yeah. Can you tell us who he was and how did his ideas spread across Europe and United States? Because when I read the book,
1: you keep coming back to
2: this figure and it just shows how influential he was.
1: Uh, yes. um, Yeah, you're right. I do position Orsini as a really significant figure because to my mind, he was the progenitor in many ways of this age of terror. And I go so far as to argue that he he is the man who commits the first modern terrorist act in uh, 1858, which, as you as you mentioned, has this has this wide reaching uh, impact. So Orsini was an Italian nationalist. Um, He decided in about 1857 that he was going to assassinate Emperor Napoleon III of France with the idea that Napoleon's death would create a sort of domino effect of political outcomes that would lead eventually to the Italian peninsula being unified. Italy was not a unified state at this time and that was Orsini's ultimate uh, political aim. Now, obviously there's been regicides throughout history, emperors and kings being, being killed, but what was unique about this was Orsini, rather than just simply trying to shoot or stab uh, Napoleon III, decided that he would invent a new improvised explosive device, or IED, for the purpose, and this came to be known as the Orsini Bomb. And the reason why this is significant is because the Orsini Bomb was a um, percussion-detonated shrapnel grenade. So percussion detonated means that if you throw it against a hard surface, it, it um, explodes upon impact, so you don't need to light a fuse. That means that it's very easy to transport, uh, which indeed it was. It was, it was, the Orsini bombs used in this attack were, were built in Britain. They were transported to France uh, via Belgium without anyone suspecting them. Uh, they were easy to assemble. Uh, there were a team of four bombers uh, brought together by Orsini, which included himself, uh, and In January 1858, they tried to uh, kill Napoleon by throwing these bombs at his carriage as it was pulling up to the Paris theater. Now, this is the other part that's significant. Not only are they trying to kill uh, the Emperor Napoleon III with shrapnel grenades, which is a pretty strange way to uh, carry out a targeted killing. Shrapnel is by its nature indiscriminate. But they deliberately throw these grenades at a point when napoleon's carriage is is swarmed by parisians who've come out to see the emperor so they are carrying out this attack knowing full well that they are going to um hurt and indeed kill innocent bystanders which they do that eight people die and about 150 odd are wounded in the attack napoleon himself survives because as i say the the ordinance the they they decided on um, the the weapon was inappropriate really for the task of assassination but it was as a terrorist weapon it was very significant because the you can imagine the scenes of chaos a number of bombs go off in a crowded space there there's shrapnel flying everywhere it creates horrifying scenes and they grab headlines across the world because of this and i argue in the book that orsini wanted this he, he wanted um media attention he wanted some sort of recognition for the Italian nationalist cause. And he wanted ultimately to strike fear across Paris and indeed across Europe. He was, he was uh, one of the generation of nationalists and revolutionaries who were opposed to the, the sway that emperors held across Europe. And I think by targeting Napoleon, who was probably the, the premier um, uh, emperor in Europe at the time, he was sending a message to other heads of state that anyone armed with this weapon could get at you. And that lesson was really informative to a whole generation of radicals, not just nationalists, but nihilists, socialists, and anarchists down the line, who all tended to lord Orsini and hold him up, something that that was kind of lost in the history books for a long time, but only in recent years. as has come out through not just my research, but research of others that Orsini really did have this transnational influence um, everywhere from from Russia to, to the United States. There were radicals of various ideological persuasions who who thought that this guy was onto something. They, they This idea that you could use a couple of bombs to terrorize an emperor and indeed a whole country, um, that was significant. That really was the essence of, of terrorist thinking that came out of that, which, as I say, was widely embraced. And... Uh,
2: just as you mentioned, it was very influential, and there, there, there's this phrase that you use uh, that came to be known, Orsini warfare, and it spread to Russia. And there you talk about some uh, how, how tech, terrorism as a tactic was adopted, and you talk about uh, uh, some people in Russia, I, I, I'm, again, I might be butchering their names, Narotnaya. Rasprava. Anyway, I'll leave it to you to talk yeah. about this section of the
1: book. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's it uh, can be difficult. So, now um, uh, or People's Revenge is is one of a number of of nihilist groups that emerge in the in the 1860s uh, and through to the 1880s. Now, nihilism was a uniquely Russian ideology, uh, at least in its violent form, in that it was it was basically um an ideology that was built around the notion of stripping the russian state of all of its existing uh, edifices that being uh zardom the church um the the general structures of the state and and starting again and sort of a white, wiping the slate clean and, and creating a, a new russia and at the heart of the idea of the nihilists at least the those inclined to violence was murdering the tsar because if you if you cut off the head of the 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 snake the the body dies it was that sort of theory and um the people's revenge uh they were they were um led by a fellow by the name of Zergai netjev who was a very influential uh terrorist thinker more influential than i think he's often given credit for um and he as i say was was one of a number of nihilists who who got terrorism for want of a better term and and the notion that you could use um not only not only bombs but but the 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 threat of of some kind of subversive organization to try to terrorize the powers that be and this really built on the 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 outcome of Orsini's um attempt on on Napoleon's life about a decade earlier because in the reportage on Orsini the word conspiracy, uh, was used uh, quite quite often and this there was this idea floating around that he was the the spearhead of this wider international conspiracy against um the, the heads of state across Europe which what wasn't wasn't necessarily true he did have a number of international um partners uh, mostly britons and and uh, a frenchman who who helped him out with the plot but to say there was some kind of you know grand underground conspiracy was uh, perhaps a bit of hyperbole but that idea was something that really bought into um so he was looking at i guess the propagandizing of terrorism but there was another terrorist uh, another nihilist group at this period in russia that was directly influenced by elsini and particularly his bomb and that was a group uh, that was simply called hell which is uh, one of the more blunt uh, names for a terrorist organization you're ever going to find and they were um, led by a fellow called uh, Nikolai Schutten, who was obsessed with the idea that to kill the Tsar, you needed the Orsini bomb, so much so that he actually dispatched w- one of his um, acolytes to Geneva with the idea uh, that there that was where you could find blueprints for the Orsini bomb and people who could tell you how to wage, as you say, Orsini warfare, which to define that term, that term was actually um, coined... I believe in the Freeman's Journal, which was uh, an Irish Fenian. Uh, um, uh, uh, well, it had some Fenian leanings, um, and it it's testament to how widely, uh, as I say, Orsini's ideas spread. That you have Irish Republicans talking about the Orsini way of of warfare as well, um, and it's it's that significance that, that that really comes through. It is really understood in Russia as as being what we would recognize today as terrorism, uh, using asymmetrical warfare, using innovative weapons to try to um, uh, use, use attack specific targets with the idea of, of striking fear. That was what Orsini, what the radicals of this era meant when they referred to Orsini warfare. Um, And Shutin, as I say, was, was one of the, the many Russian nihilists, along with Nechev who, who bought into this idea Unfortunately for him, um, when he, his, his, um, uh, disciple was sent to Geneva, he found out that there, there were no blueprints for the Orsini bomb and they couldn't get access to it. So the hell never got themselves an Orsini bomb. Netchev's campaign kind of fell apart, uh, because of his own well, megalomania and recklessness, to be honest. Um, so these, these. This first generation of, of violent Russian nihilists in the eighteen sixties, they didn't really get anywhere, but they nonetheless took on board the ideas that, as I as I argue in the book, Orsini really uh really pioneered.
2: And and that was uh, and uh, so was very significant and influential person in the development of modern terrorism in the fix that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the invention of? The dynamite. You talk about dynamite. You know, fueling a whole new wave of uh,
1: revolutionary acts of violence. Yes. So, uh, perhaps the best way to think about it is the Orsini bomb provides a proof of concept for how uh, uh, someone disempowered in terms of their their military capacity, someone who doesn't have military training, someone who doesn't have access to firearms but can nonetheless put together an, an IED, can um, level the playing field, as it were, with, with states and with their emperors and, and, and so forth. Dynamite builds on that on that premise because what dynamite provided uh, when it was patented in, in the mid-1860s was uh, yet another form of explosive that was pretty uh, cheap, um, quite transportable, and like, unlike the Orsini bomb, it was actually a lot more of a s- stable and explosive. The Orsini bomb, um, uh, the the actual explosive material in it, could sometimes be a bit problematic, whereas um, uh, dynamite was a, as I say, a more stable component uh, compound. It was also quite readily available because when dynamite was first patented uh, by Alfred Nobel, the idea was to use it uh, in mining operations. It was meant to blast rock so that you could um you know uh, create tunnels for railways or or you know uh, a out um uh, quarries things like that and so dynamite could be found on building sites so all you had to do was get a job at a building site really um and put some in your pocket and off you went and it became very very quickly adopted by the same kind of people who had adopted the Orsini bomb in uh, uh, years prior. It took a while until dynamite was being widely used. I'd say it probably wasn't until about uh, the late 1870s that it really starts taking hold of of, um, terrorist imaginations. And there's one particularly notorious anarchist of the era who, who calls it the proletariat's artillery and that really tells you everything you need to know about how it was perceived and how it was held up as this 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 uh, amazing material that could somehow give uh disempowered radicals the kind of the kind of power that that states with standing armies had so it was both a very useful form of explosive in a practical sense and it was also iconic in a way it 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 it, it had this evocative um appeal for um for particularly anarchists, but also it was used by the next generation of Russian nihilists and indeed a variety of other uh, radical groups during this period.
2: And and uh, what was Finian dynamite war and how, what kind of response did it generate in, in, in England? Yeah, so
1: the Finian dynamite war is a, a significant part of my story in Rise of Devils because it really is the first concerted terrorist campaign on British soil, which kicks off in 1881 and runs through until about 1885 1886 depending on how you want to um to look at it and what it what it was was the the culmination of a good couple of decades of uh, irish republican uh thinking about how to move the the struggle for irish independence forward um and home rule in particular forward uh using political violence now there'd been some some hit-and-miss attempts before in the 1860s. Famously, Fenians based in the United States had attempted to invade Canada as a means of putting pressure on the British Empire. That had ended um, in a a bit of a fiasco. There had been attempted uprisings um, using uh, pretty ill-coordinated forces in uh, various parts of Ireland and and northern England um, in uh, the the mid-to-late 1860s as well, 1870s. And so by the time you get to the end of the 1870s, as I say, dynamite's coming to the fore, and there's this new way of thinking, particularly amongst Fenian groups in the United States, about embracing dynamite uh, as, as a means of, of, of striking back against Britain. And they're informed it should be said at this time by another campaign that's uh, occurring in Russia, which starts in 1879, when another group of nihilists the uh, they were called uh, the People's Will. They start a dynamite campaign against uh, Tsar Alexander II, which is much more successful than that of the the nihilists of the 1860s. They actually detonate quite a number of bombs, and eventually they they kill the Tsar himself in uh, in March 1881. So this is all happening at about the same time that the Fenians are also planning their own attacks, and when this dynamite war kicks off uh, the start of 1881 it does so in a, in a, a reasonably unspectacular fashion and a big part of that is because the early uh ieds that they use are generally gunpowder based and a lot of them are not particularly powerful um so when the press gets hold of the, the starts picking up that there's attacks occurring across britain the initial response is actually well this is all a bit you know, a bit of a joke. We shouldn't be too worried, but then, after a couple of months, dynamite devices start appearing, um, and in particular, there's a cache of um, uh, dynamite um, charged, uh, timed, bo- timed uh, IEDs. Uh, so they've got clockwork uh, timing on them uh, that are uncovered on board a ship in Liverpool, and that really sparks a wave of fear in in britain and the authorities realize that the Fenians are now very well armed and you get a spate of attacks it's about 15 or so in total over the course of the the dynamite war and these attacks are on police stations they're on uh, the london underground gets bombed the gas works is bombed there are attempts to Blow up um, uh, has West uh, uh, Westminster. There's uh, an attempt on London Bridge, if I recall. There's a number of attacks in pretty significant locations. Not too many people die; only about five, or six people die. The idea is not to kill people; it's to create fear. That's the the principal aim. And in the in many respects, it's a kind of prototype for. The, the sorts of terrorist attacks uh, or terrorist campaigns that occur in the in the 20th century and beyond where you've got a a, a group with a with a, a stated political goal using a, a a wave of mostly soft target bombings to try to create a sense of anxiety and fear that brings politicians to the negotiating table um so it's a really significant campaign campaign in britain and it has a number of impacts not the least of which being that it leads to the foundation of uh, Britain's first counter-terrorism force which is special branch formed in 1883. you also get the rise of some innovative counterterrorism measures and I talk a, a lot about this this fellow in rise of Devils because I think he's he's very he's been forgotten by history but he is very important when it comes to understanding the first um, war on terror. there's a man by the name of Colonel Vivian magendi who was an explosives expert who actually during the dynamite war pioneers a number of techniques for what today we would call bomb disposal. Uh, he actually founds the first real bomb disposal squad based at Scotland Yard. And he, he pioneers things like explosives forensics. He, he diffuses a number of bombs. He picks them apart. He learns how to recognize them. And he's really a, a very influential figure in, in, uh, reconceptualizing how police look at, uh, terrorism as a, as a crime and how they look at things like, like, uh, bomb disposal. So it does have a number of, of quite wide-ranging impacts, the, uh, the Finian dynamite
2: war. And, and there was another important character, Johan Most, uh, that you discuss in the book and, uh, he, he advocated terrorism and his advocacy was also influenced by socialist and anarchist views. Uh. Can you tell us who he was and what his views of terrorism were?
1: Yes. Uh, so Johann Most is a really fascinating figure, and as you say, I, I spend a, a fair bit of time with him in the book. He, he pops up quite a bit, and you kind of have to when writing a, a history of terrorism in this period because he 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 really is everywhere for uh, particularly in the eighteen eighties, um, uh, which is a crucial decade as you as a sort of uh, conveying. For, for terrorism writ large because you have the Naradawalias campaign in Russia uh, which which ticks on until about 1883 you have the, the dynamite war and then you have Most who starts life as a uh, socialist politician in Russia uh, sorry, uh, Germany uh, and he's actually a member of the Reichstag for a time he becomes too radical for the taste of his uh, political um uh, comrades and he ends up basically being hounded out of uh, Germany for being just too militant too violent. he winds up in Britain where he starts publishing uh, a magazine called Freiheit which uh, means freedom and it's it's a radical magazine in which he he extols the virtues of um, uh, violence as a form of political action and he starts leaning into a more anarchist way of thinking. Uh, that's uh, a lot more militant and uh, radicalized than his, his previous socialist beliefs. And he gets into a lot of trouble when, as I say, in 1881, uh de managed to kill Tsar Alexander II on the streets of St. Petersburg. They, he's killed by, via a suicide bomber, who, to tie all this together, is armed with what is effectively an Orsini bomb. However, it's fueled by dynamite. And this guy rushes at the, the, the Tsar, um uh, uh smashes into him and uh, the bomb detonates and then the czar the dies and so does the bomber and this is a an international um uh, spectacular this terrorist attack it's um it's akin to the 9-11 of its day in terms of the 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 kind of press coverage it gets and the fear it creates across much of the world and most picks up on this and he runs an article in freiheit saying well isn't this wonderful you know basically uh it's great that the that the czar's dead and let's have some more of this you know let's have more emperors dying in this way and that gets him into a lot of trouble as you can imagine um uh even in britain where there had been a pretty loose attitude towards um this kind of incendiary talk in, in decades gone by most really pushes that envelope too much and eventually, he's he's he has to uh, uh, leave Britain, and he he winds up in the United States, where he can preach that kind of incendiary violence um, more openly because of the the value of free speech and 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 so forth. He reestablishes Freiheit there, and he really develops a reputation amongst the anarchist communities, particularly of the, the East Coast, East Seaboard, as um, this this very influential well-connected guy he gives um interviews to journalists and it's really quite interesting how the journalists play along with him um, you know they 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 like to talk about him being the king killer and being this this grand you know preacher of dynamite terrorism and and they they, they for want of a better term they love it you know they, they 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 love the sensationalism that he brings um, and they they love interviewing him and, and hearing him, talk these wild, uh, wild talk about uh using dynamite to to uh, change the world, and it's it's one of the many parallels I draw with today and how people who who go out and, and say the most sort of heinous things in a public forum, who try to rile people up, tend to get the most press attention, um, and it's this kind of very unhealthy symbiotic relationship that exists between between uh media and 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 social commentators and most really taps into that um he he understands that that same dynamic that's at play today in, in our media he understood that back in the 1880s he knew how to work the press to build his own profile and to build support for his cause he gives a number of lecture tours where he, he extols the virtues of anarchism, revolution, violence, bombs, um, and as as a consequence, he gets tied to a number of terrorist attacks during this period, um, including most notoriously the, the the Haymarket bombing of 1886 in Chicago, which is a, a very significant um, uh, terrorist incident in in America's history. But he also gets tied to to bombings in in or attempted bombings in Germany. Um, as well as uh, in Switzerland, and assassination attempts in Switzerland. He's seen as, in in short, this guy who's kind of controlling what the press by the mid-1880s is starting to conceive of as a a global anarchist conspiracy. And this is one of the the things I really uh, pick up on in, in Rise of Devils and kind of chronicle the development of is this idea which is to go back to what I was saying about Orsini, how the word conspiracy gets thrown around a lot to explain his attack on Napoleon, that idea really develops quite rapidly, um, through 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 fake news, through assumptions, through through lackadaisical reportage, through through fear and anxiety into this notion which is really hardened by the eighteen eighties that terrorist attacks across the world are all being coordinated, that they're part of some global underground. Uh, and Most, to the mind of some, is seen as one of the one of the key leaders of this, this global underground. Even though we know now that it didn't work like that, uh, Most wasn't issuing orders for terrorists to attack in, in this country or that country, either side of the Atlantic, but he was putting... As you say, sort of hate speech out there. What today we would call hate speech, dangerous ideas out into the world, which impressionable uh, people were hearing and and following uh, and 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 self radicalizing uh, via. Um, so it's a very it's a very contemporary story in many ways. It's the sort of stuff that um, continues to happen to this to this day, where someone goes out there, says some some incendiary stuff. And just waits for others who are more disposed to act on, on those kind of words to, uh, to carry out their deeds. And uh, that was a dynamic that I think Most understood pretty well.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: It was quite fascinating how the techniques that we nowadays use with the rise of social media, just like you said, were pretty much common, or if not common, were actually did happen um, like a century ago. So it just goes to show how much our reporting or our conception of ideas of terrorism or hate speech hasn't really changed that much.
1: No, no, not at all. And I think I think that the, I mean, obviously things are accelerated now. Things move faster and they're more multifaceted because social media is is so instantaneous because there are so many elements to it. But yes, you're right. The basic principles. of of information dissemination were really being figured out at this time and most is one of a number of figures that i chronicle in the book who i think understand this um they don't perhaps understand it to the to the extent that you know um people today do because it's obviously grown more sophisticated but the basic idea that you go out there you say a few. A few key phrases, a few leading statements, a few, um, you know, nefarious suggestions. And you know that there's people who will pick it up. And uh, yeah, as I say, this was not just Moss. This was a a very much a a transnational phenomenon during this period. Mm.
2: Now we have talked about uh, terrorism. Let's talk about the police reaction to, uh, to these acts of terrorism. Yeah, what sorts of measures did police chiefs employ to counter-terrorism? And you have you have a number of police chiefs that you talk about, Wilhelm Stiber, William Melville. Can you talk about uh, the, let's say, the counter-terrorism measures that were put into place?
1: Yeah, so um, Stiber's, uh, Wilhelm Stiber's an interesting, really interesting guy, and I, I use him at, at the start of the book, actually, to kind of frame the, the mindset of the police during this period, because he was, um, he was a Prussian uh, spy master, police chief who was who is active. Really, his heyday was kind of just before this period, so it's kind of like the eighteen fifties into the eighteen sixties, and he nonetheless is very influential because a he sees radicalism as a transnational problem. Um, he's particularly obsessed with Karl Marx. Uh, and, with, and with the idea of a global communist conspiracy. And B, he was uh, a paranoid conspiracy theorist, uh, to put it bluntly. And he really is the, is the guy who puts this idea out amongst the police. He's not the only one, but he is perhaps one of the more influential police chiefs of this period who puts out this idea that any kind of radical politics, wherever it flares up, uh, from, from St. Petersburg to Barcelona london paris new york doesn't matter where it's all part of the same thing they're they're all talking to each other there is this global underground and and we need to to contain it basically uh, if not eradicate it and that's stieber's view and it's very influential on police chiefs uh that come uh arise after he's he's really had his heyday he dies i think in 1882 from memory um, and but by that time his ideas are really firmly entrenched, and there's there's a number of, of police chiefs who really uh, pick up on this. Um, there's uh, a fellow called Andreu who um, in in France who emerges uh, Louis Andreu who emerges as the prefect of Paris police uh, after the um, Paris Commune, who really leans into this idea as a means of of trying. I think to 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 bolster his police force quite a bit, um, so he's he's somewhat cynical about it. But then there's others who are both cynical and I think believers in the conspiracy theory. And one of the the, the key figures is is a man called Petr Rakovsky, who is the head of the Okhrana, the the Russian secret police. Um, and he really is Stephen's spiritual successor in that he conceives of this idea that there's a, a, a global radical conspiracy. He uses that fear of that to bolster his police forces. And he picks up on a lot of the the techniques that Stieber had pioneered in his own time and and embraced in his own time to try to infiltrate these groups Um, using double agents, using agent provocateurs, people who will go into groups and then encourage them to be more violent, to carry out specific terrorist attacks with the idea of entrapping them. Um, he also uses fake news, which is an interesting one um, that, that Steber had dabbled in this idea of you of establishing state-run uh, newspapers and, and and magazines that will put out radical ideas, um, ostensibly as if they were being published by anarchists or nihilists or socialists or whoever. But within the articles themselves in these magazines there would be some some disruptive ideas. there would be um, for example, attempts to sow dissent between various socialists and various anarchists to disrupt the movement. It's a quite sophisticated way of, of, of running things that was, that occurred in a number of, of, of states during this period in terms of trying to disrupt the ideas within the, the, the so-called um, uh, conspiracy. But in a more pragmatic sense, um, Rakovsky is, is very good at, at infiltrating radical groups, um, uh, using it paid informers this is something that is also really significant in the uh, aforementioned dynamite war in 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 britain where uh paid informers within the fenians ranks are are a, a big part of the counter-terrorism push which along with as i mentioned before colonel magendi's um more sort of forensic measures uh really lead to this this development of a of a I wouldn't go as far as to call it a template, but but a, a system of ideas for how to a, approach any kind of terrorist threat. You infiltrate the organisation or the or the movement with with uh, double agents, uh, with spies. You you find weak links in the chain of the organisations and you pay them to inform. Um, you use agent provocateurs to to bring them out and to get them to commit acts so that you can um, uh, launch mass arrests and where possible you try to get press attention on your efforts to for want of a better term control the narrative and and make it seem like there there isn't so much something to fear that the, the police are in control of the situation and this is something that another key figure of this period uh by the name of sir william melville is really quite adept at uh melville uh, works for scotland yard he um and and special branch he becomes a a really key figure in not only the the struggle against fenianism in britain but also against anarchism and he's he's really big on making sure the public know that he's out there fighting the good fight as it were against the anarchists he why he's he likes he likes the limelight for want of a better term he likes to know that he is um he is out there protecting the people of britain and it's it's a it's a it's a form of propaganda in many ways he's trying to propagandize his, his crusade against terrorism which was something stieber did back in the the 50s and 60s to um create this idea that the state is protecting its people and can protect its people against uh, against terrorism so again so much of this stuff is is very contemporary um ideas of narratives ideas of, of using the media um, to 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 gain publicity for counterterrorism uh, um initiatives um and everything down to the forensics of Magendi. it's all it's all very um reminiscent of of the kinds of techniques that, that um, are still used to this day in counterterrorism and this as i argue in rise of devils is really the formative period uh for this this conception of counterterrorist policing
2: and with the rise of uh marxism for example, International Working Men's Association, the police was so much gripped by conspiracy theories, the press and the political understandings of the first age of terror. What was the reason behind that? Because as you mentioned in the book, it wasn't like the whole, there was this orchestrated effort to, 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 to stage some acts of violence across all of Europe, but that seemed to be something that the police firmly believed in. Mm.
1: What was the source of these conspiracy theories? Well, it's it's an interesting one. Um, in many ways, it, it predates this this period. Um, you can go right back to the aftermath of the the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, uh, right after eighteen fifteen, when when this idea that there will be some kind of second grand revolution is is really it really takes hold of a lot of 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 police and and uh, and figures of authority across Europe, and that this this the, the nature of revolution is itself an international um, phenomenon. And this is, is sort of borne out in some way to the minds of people who think that way when in 1848 you get a, a spate of revolutions across Europe, which all seem to happen relatively simultaneously. And that reconfirms this idea, certainly to the mind of, of Wilhelm Stieber, who's really influenced by the revolutions of 1848 and driven to this notion that. Well, yes, obviously, all these radicals must somehow be um, talking to each other. So there's something inherent in the conception of revolution at this time that makes that draws police to thinking that it must be coordinated. And as you say, the International Workingmen's Association is is almost provides a proof of concept for that. So when that's established in uh, 1864, if I remember correctly, um, you you have this this coming together of a communist international which is is pledging to unite the workers of the world and that idea for for people like wilhelm stieber they just look at that and say well obviously i'm right you know i've been saying for years that all of these radicals these people who are opposed to the to the world and the the state in which it's in um that, that they're all talking to each other and they want to be an international force well here it is that you know the the first communist international the fact that the iwma is not you know specifically involved in terrorist activity it has a few bad apples within it within, without question but it's it's not and Marx certainly doesn't go around endorsing um the the kind of uh, he, he you know he, he's not a fan of Johann most um he's not a fan of of uh various other figures in the book who Arise during this period to to preach uh, political violence because he's smart enough to see that actually it damages the cause. If you go out there and you say, "Well, we need to hack off the heads of emperors and detonate bombs in in public spaces," then you you're kind of delegitimizing your 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 ideology and your your political goals. And Marx is 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 rather cognizant of that um uh, for the most part, but that doesn't matter because. The fact that this organization exists, it really, it, it provides grist to the mill for conspiracy theorists. And what's particularly erroneous about this, and this is something I, I spend a bit of time in the book covering, is how far this leads the police astray. Because when when you get the emergence of, of anarchist terrorism as a global phenomenon, really, from the late 1880s, 1890s, this assumption a widely held assumption is that as i say all these anarchist attacks are coordinated and the reason why it's assumed so is because fundamentally the police are not that interested um in, in differentiating between communists anarchists nihilists whoever they're all they're all radicals they're all part of the same you know bothersome group is is how they're seen and that's a fundamental misreading of a, a number of things firstly from an ideological standpoint you, there's a, a significant schism that occurs on on the far left of politics at this time between the followers of Karl Marx, who are uh, obviously adherents to socialist Marxism, um, and then the followers of Mikhail Bakunin, who is who is um, uh, the most significant, I would say, anarchist thinker, or one of the most significant of this era. And he and Marx have a falling out that's both ideological and personal. About and on the ideological side, it's it's very much about what the revolution is meant to look like. And Marx's adherents generally stay away from the kind of political violence and the kind of outright terrorism, as we would understand it today, that a number of Bakunin's adherents instead start to lean into. And the fact that the, the anarchist ideology doesn't lend itself to the kind of organizational structures that Marx is trying to put in place with the IWMA, the fact that a lot of the anarchist violence in the 1880s and 1890s is carried out by individuals, what what we, we would perhaps call today lone wolves, people who are self-radicalized, people who, who don't have some central governing body telling them how to think and what to do, people who are just reading anarchist magazines and coming up with ideas and hearing words from, as I say, people like Johann Most telling them that it would be great if someone bombed this place or killed this king or whatever, and that's enough for them. The police are very slow to pick up on that. It's easier in many respects to fall back on this old idea that, well, people don't don't get self-radicalized and don't just emerge from the shadows and throw bombs. No, 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 they're, they're directed by some grand conspiracy somewhere. We just need to find out where the conspiracy is and, and, and we'll unravel this whole thing. That idea false as it is 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 i think more comforting for the police in some ways uh than the notion that they're facing this genuinely difficult to detect threats i mean to this day lone wolf terrorism is, is a difficult thing to to combat because it, it i mean it's perhaps easier today because people leave digital footprints when they're online what they're looking at but even so it is really difficult to 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 know what's in someone's head And back then, it was particularly difficult. And so that's a big part of the reason, I think, why the police go for what seems like a comparatively easier option, which is to believe that there's some kind of anarchist IWMA out there, um, which they they brand at at certain points that the term Anarchist International is actually used to discuss this idea that there's some sort of central governing body directing these attacks. And um, as I say, it really leads to a, a, a... uh, a misallocation of, of police resources during this what what is developing into the first real war on terror. And,
2: and and the police phone was so firmly confirmed that anarchism was the root of the problem and the root of terrorism and they need to eliminate this ideology if they want to eliminate terrorism, right? Yes. Um yeah
1: I think because anarchism in kind of in, in many ways sort of represents the the apotheosis of both this long-standing conspiracy theory idea that that there's a global ideology that links all radicals the fact that anarchism itself was taken on board by a, a variety of different many different types of people across the world with different grievances who, who kind of found in anarchism a, a catch-all for a number of of things that that they felt needed to wrongs that they felt needed to be put right and also I think the fact that, that you do, because of the, the nature of self-radicalization, and because in the 1880s and 1890s, there's a lot to be radicalized about. I mean, we're, we're coming off the back of the first Great Depression of the 1870s. There's a lot of unemployment. There's a lot of worker agitation. There's a lot of unrest. We're in the midst of the Second Industrial Revolution and all the anxieties around that. The, the gap between the haves and have-nots of the world uh, in, in the United States and Western Europe in particular is, is starting to widen. And you, it's a very tentious time. And so anarchism is very appealing to a, a number of people. And there's a, a, quite a number of anarchists I look at in the book who, when you actually look at their backgrounds, anarchist terrorists, when you look at their backgrounds, it's they're very similar. You know, They're, they're unemployed, angry young men for the most part. Who are kind of drift into anarchism and 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 let it guide them to violence, and I think that because of that, because this phenomenon is seemingly so widespread, and because anarchism itself is so widely demonized in the press as this godless, you know, um, uh, highly destructive and and supposedly highly organized revolutionary ideology. Um, it becomes synonymous with terrorism to the point where when there is finally this this very significant international effort made to uh, fight against uh, the terrorist wave in 1898 uh, there's a congress held in rome which is called the anti-anarchist congress and it is in effect an anti-terrorist policing congress attended by police chiefs and politicians from across europe and yet It's branded the anti-anarchist congress because by this time by 1898 anarchism is terrorism that's how it's understood they are they are effectively synonymous to the minds of uh certainly the police but also to to some pretty wide portions of the press as well and um that i think reflects a a wider mentality that, that 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 anarchism is by its very nature terroristic even though at this time there is a another big schism happening in the anarchist movement between those who who want to distance themselves from the kind of individualist terrorism stabbings bombings assassinations etc that have been occurring across europe in the 1890s they want to distance themselves from that and instead focus on the ideology um and then there's the 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 more violently inclined who are saying, no, this is the only way we can bring on the revolution. So the nuances of the fact that there's even a debate within the anarchist movement, that's something that is mostly ignored by uh, the police uh, because to their mind, anarchism is terrorism and terrorism is anarchism.
2: And uh, another really great part of the book that I loved was when you talk about how anarchism starts to shift its tactics towards more collective political action they move away from acts of violence and uh did it um so let's say the rise of terrorist acts were did it uh, did terrorism debate uh, sorry the abate with with transition of anarchism towards collective political action in certain countries yes
1: um there's some countries where the the terrorist wave continues into the the 20th century um spain past south america um but then really when we're talking about the so so the height of the the anarchist terrorist wave of the 1890s the main place for that is probably france um which sees a spate of of um quite significant bombings um and and uh various other uh, terrorist attacks, shootings stabbings um French president, Zadikarno, is, is stabbed to death. Um, uh, there's various other um, uh, attacks that occur that really make France the, the, the seeming epicenter of this anarchist wave. And it's there that the aforementioned debate uh, really comes to the fore between the within the anarchists. So, you know, what are we actually doing here? Are we just simply delegitimizing ourselves every single time one of these acts of violence occurs and do we need to move towards as you say a more collective action and and something that's that's more constructive rather than destructive and that really does start to come more to the fore towards the end of that decade and into the early uh, uh 1900s and with it you do get an ebbing i think of the 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 enthusiasm let's say for political violence at least in, in in certain countries, uh, as I say, though, that the actual concept, and this is something I, I'm at pains to sort of emphasize in Rise of Devils, is that when you actually step back and look at this age of terror, the ideology isn't that important. It's the tactic itself that's important and the fact that the same kind of tactics that the Fenians take on board are the same kind of tactics that the Nihilists take on board. And the anarchists have a sort of all and sundry influence on on a variety of, of different groups uh be they indian nationalists uh, uh chinese anti-manchu uh, um revolutionaries and in russia in particular in the early 1900s you get this absolute um, explosion of terrorist violence uh that is i wouldn't say bereft of ideology but it certainly seems seems very uh aimless in in many respects because you have socialists you have anarchists you have nihilists you have you have communists you have you have um, on the right, you have sort of anti-Semitic uh, uh, gangs running around, uh, committing acts of political violence, and so much of it is is influenced by the anarchist terrorist wave of of the previous decade. It's the same kind of tactics, it's the same kind of ideas, it's the same kind of bomb making that's at play, and and this idea of indiscriminate violence. To further all kinds of political objectives, it really comes together in Russia. And I spent some time at the end of the book discussing just how that if, if violence ebbs in other countries, certainly it doesn't go away. It it it, it shifts to other areas, I and mean, in particular, sort of Russia in the wake of the 1905 loss of the of the war with Japan um, and the revolution that occurs there the first of, of what will be three revolutions in the, in the course of, in the course of the next, uh, uh, decade or so. Um, it's, it's a, it's a fissile time in Russia. Let's put it that way. And in times of facility, in times of, of, of anxiety, in times of political instability, um, you get these, you get this kind of violence. And so Russia really is, is the place where a lot of these tactics, a lot of these ideas, um, really gestate in the early nineteen hundreds. So yes, anarchist violence does ebb in certain places, but the 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 proof of concept for how this form of terrorism, uh which is known as propaganda of the deed, you know, uh it really keeps going in a in a lot of other places and indeed intensifies. Uh
2: before we end this conversation, um is there any other book you're currently working on, any other projects you're working on?
1: Well as as it stands i have started moving into looking more more widely at uh, counterterrorism during this period this was a part of the book that um simply because there's certainly so many words you can put into a book i <laughs> i explored in 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 a certain way but i don't think i got into in quite enough uh depth for my liking because there's a, such a such a wide-ranging story there and i'm particularly fascinated in by how the kinds of uh counter counter terrorist policing um that evolved particularly in the colonial world uh a very sort of violent and 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 paranoid form of counter terrorist policing i'm I'm very interested in how that moved into um uh parts of 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 uh, continental europe and britain um and and sort of the policing experiences of the colonies was was formative on on early conceptions of CT and, and intelligence and secret policing so I'm I'm starting to work on in, in, in that area more broadly. Um, uh, and that will be probably where my research goes next. yes uh, Professor James crossland thank you very
2: very much for talking to us about your fascinating book. It's uh, it's it was a page turner. I can't emphasize how much I enjoyed this book and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy uh, listening to this podcast and also reading the book hopefully.
1: Thank you very much, Maury. It's been a pleasure.